right out. Everybody. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Lights Out Podcast. I'm your host, Josh. And today I'm going to be talking about some of the worst ways to die. Yes, we're going to be talking about a couple different stories, both from the past to fairly recent, of just some of the most brutal ways people have left this world. I was just thinking about this episode this morning and just the whole concept of death and dying. And, you know, whenever I think about it, I'm like, I sure hope that I leave this planet in the most peaceful way possible. I think all of us imagine our deaths and hope that our deaths are swift and peaceful. I like to think that one day I'm just going to be able to go out into, you know, the mountains or, or a field or something and just lie down and then, you know, take a nap and I just pass peacefully during that nap. But it's not always the case. I think, I think there's some luck there involved or, you know, with some of these stories, just sometimes people are in the wrong place at the wrong time. The whole concept, I think, of an existence itself is, is weird, thinking that, you know, life just consists of, you know, what the time that we leave the maternity ward to the time that we reach the crematorium and just thinking of how short, short life is. But with that being said, this is going to be a new series that I do here on Lights Out. And this is just part one of many. I mean, there's so many, so many different brutal and horrible ways to die. I mean, so much so that they made a whole movie franchise out of it with the Final Destination movies. I remember watching those grow up and just being like, holy shit, I can't even imagine some of that. But today we're going to be talking about some very brutal real life stories. But this episode of the podcast is brought to you by HelloFresh. Lomi, Skylight Frame, and Stamps. So let's just jump right into things here. We're going to begin with our first death that goes back to the 1600s. Yes, this was a time in history when witch hunting was at an all-time high, and torture was a common way to get suspects to plead guilty or die. So in 1692, the Salem witch trials made its mark on history after 15 months of hellish persecution. Wrongful accusations happen all the time. Basically, if you didn't like your neighbor or you know you didn't get along with somebody, best way to get rid of them would just be to accuse them of being a witch or performing witchcraft. More than 200 people were accused of practicing the devil's magic in Massachusetts. And as a result, many of the accusations ended with 20 total executions. But not many of those executions top the absolutely brutal death of Giles Corey. And many believe he placed a curse on the sheriff, George Corwin, the local punisher. George's punishments were often brutal and disgusting, and Giles would eventually become one of his last victims. Giles was an English-born American farmer born in August 1611. During the witch trials, he was accused of witchcraft along with his wife, Martha Corey, by a woman named Abigail Hobbs. A few years later, Giles had stood trial for killing his farmhand named Jacob Goodale. Supposedly, he had stolen some apples, so Giles killed him as a punishment. It truly was brutal times back then. At the time, the town didn't want to imprison one of their best farmers, so they left him with a fine and stern warning. Ever since then, Giles fell out of favor with many of the townsfolk. And when he was 80 years old, 
him and his wife were accused of practicing witchcraft. Pretty much after you were accused, you were quickly arrested, and that's what happened to Giles. He was arrested in April of 1692. What was interesting is that Giles actually accused his own wife of witchcraft and even testified against her. He later tried to recant his testimony, but it was no use. Her fate had already been sealed. As for Giles, he refused to enter a plea of guilty or not guilty, and local authorities pressured him to plead one way or the other so that they could take him to trial. And as the pressure grew, so did the sheriff's threats. Giles was one of six men that were accused and put on trial between May and October of 1692. But out of the six men, Giles would never actually go to trial. While the others were either hanged or died in their jail cell, his fate was so much worse. His examination began on April 1692, and through the process, some of the other girls who had been accused of witchcraft began mimicking Giles' movements, acting like they were under his magical control. To the authorities, this made him look guilty. So he stopped cooperating with investigators entirely, and he still refused to plead guilty or not guilty. Some thought he was smart enough that he had found some type of loophole in the local law. At the time, whoever was accused of witchcraft and sentenced would end up losing all of their property to the government. Giles kept in mind that he had five children, and he wanted to pass down his estate to his son-in-laws. And he knew if he went to trial, he would have no chance because... His estate would be seized by the government and his children would be left with nothing. So he decided, you know what, I'm going to keep silent. And he kept silent during the interrogations. The local authorities got more and more frustrated by the day. So the judge and Sheriff George Corwin decided to put Giles through a torture test in September of 1692. There were two possible ends. Either get Giles to plead guilty or not guilty or just straight up kill him. During the witch trials, the sheriff gained plenty of wealth. He was actually in charge of confiscating the property and possessions of anyone brought to trial. After it was seized, it would all be divided among the local leaders of Salem, even though this was illegal activity in the Massachusetts colony at the time. Driven by greed, the sheriff ordered men to strip Giles naked and place a board on top of him. Then they hauled in heavy rocks and placed a few on the board. One by one, they kept adding heavy rocks onto the board with Giles lying naked underneath until eventually Giles could barely breathe. When the sheriff told him one last time to enter a plea, all Giles said was, quote, more weight. After three days, a stone slowly crushed him. His tongue pressed out of his mouth. Then the sheriff walked by with his cane and put it to Giles' tongue and forced it back inside of his mouth. More weight kept crushing him, and blood began pouring out of every orifice of his body. The weight squeezed and ruptured his internal organs, and after three absolutely agonizing days, Giles finally died. His body had turned white as he laid in a pool of his own blood, and just days after his death, his wife was also hanged to death. Giles actually died in what would later become the Howard Street Cemetery in Salem, which opened in 1801. The exact grave location is unmarked and unknown, but there's a memorial plaque to him in the nearby Charter Street Cemetery. In all of U.S. history, Giles Corey is the only person to be pressed to death by order of a court law. As for Sheriff George Corwin, Giles' blood was on his hands. 
Supposedly, Giles's last words were a curse on the sheriff and the whole town of Salem. This curse seemed to manifest right after Giles' death. It targeted the sheriff and the other authorities. Sheriff George Corwin died of a heart attack four years after Giles' brutal death. Many others began to mysteriously die while they were still in office, or they were forced into early retirement because of a heart or blood illness. And the curse seemed to have a long-lasting effect on the town of Salem. To this very day, whenever a local tragedy occurs, locals claim to see the ghost of Giles looming around town. During the witch trials, a woman named Anne was quoted saying that even before Giles' death, a spectral vision of him appeared to her. The ghost told her to write her name in the book of the devil. Today, Giles' ghost looks like an 80-year-old farmer from the 1600s, and he's said to still linger around the dark corners of Salem. Many believe he's the main cause of the local terror, fulfilling his curse on the town. I don't know about you, but thinking about being pressed to death just makes me squirm inside. Like, ugh. Can you imagine just being laid down? Having someone put a board on top. And not only just, I mean, lay down naked too. Having a board put on you, then heavy ass stones put on top of that board until the insides are just, ugh. I can't even imagine the pain that he must have been in. I wonder if he he passed out at any point. I feel like you would probably just pass out at some point especially with a rock on top of your head like oh but if you thought that death was brutal this next one is more modern but just as haunting and just like the witch trials an entire neighborhood seemed to turn against a young girl in 1965 a 16 year old girl named sylvia likens and her sister jenny were left in the care of a family friend Sylvia's parents were both carnival workers, so that meant they were on the road a lot. They also didn't have a lot of money. Her father, Lester, only had an 8th grade education and had to financially support his five children. Jenny was quiet and withdrawn, and she had a limp from polio. Sylvia was more confident and went by the nickname Cookie. Many described her as pretty, even though she was missing a front tooth. In July of 1965, their father decided to head out with the carnival again. He had to make ends meet while his wife was in jail for shoplifting earlier that summer. Sylvia's brothers, Danny and Benny, were sent to live with their grandparents. The oldest sister, Diana, was old enough to live on her own. And Sylvia and Jenny were sent to stay with a family friend by the name of Gertrude Banaszewski, who lived at 3850 East New York Street in Indianapolis, Indiana. Gertrude was poor, much like the Likens family, and she had seven kids to support. She made a little money by ironing her neighbor's laundry once a week. She had first met Sylvia and Jenny because her daughters went to the same high school as them. By the time they had gone to live with her, Gertrude had been through multiple divorces. Physical abuse and violence was common in several of her marriages. She also dealt with crippling depression while also being hooked on heavy doses of prescription drugs. Lester offered her $20 a week to watch after his daughters while he was gone. He also made a cryptic request when he dropped them off. He quietly asked Gertrude to quote-unquote straighten his daughters out during their stay. For the first three weeks, Sylvia and Jenny were fine. They got along with almost everyone in the house, except Gertrude's oldest daughter, 17-year-old Paula, 
seemed to always get into arguments with Sylvia. Besides that, though, most of their stay was fine. Then one week, their father's payment of $20 had come in late, and Gertrude flew into a rage and screamed at Sylvia and Jenny, saying, I took care of you two bitches for two weeks for nothing. She then grabbed Sylvia by the arm and dragged her down the hallway and tossed her into a bedroom. She then went in after Sylvia and slammed the door. Jenny ran to the bedroom door and heard the click of a lock. All Jenny could do was just sit outside the door and listen as her sister screamed from the inside the bedroom. And this was just the beginning. Even though Gertrude was a frail older woman, she could use tools to beat the two girls. She would pull out a heavy paddle or a thick leather belt that used to belong to one of her ex-husbands and beat the girls with them. When Gertrude was too tired to beat the girls, she got her oldest daughter Paula to step in. Since Paula had already disliked Sylvia, she became the prime focus of the physical abuse. Gertrude even forced Jenny to join in. She threatened her that if she didn't join in, she'd have to take her sister's place as the main punching bag. So Jenny reluctantly began beating her sister too. Sometime later, Gertrude accused Sylvia of stealing from her. So she took Sylvia's hands, lit a match, and began burning each of her fingertips. She then took Sylvia to a church function where she force-fed her free hot dogs until she became sick. When they got home, Sylvia began vomiting. Gertrude said she was wasting good food. So she forced Sylvia to eat her own vomit. As the abuse went on, Gertrude started encouraging her other children to join in. The younger kids practiced karate on Sylvia, slamming her into the walls, kicking her and throwing her down to the floor. They smoked cigarettes and used her skin as an ashtray. They threw her down the stairs and cut open her skin with small blades. Then they would rub salt into those open wounds. After all of this, Gertrude would force Sylvia to take a bath so that she could cleanse the wounds. But she would make sure that the water she bathed in was scalding hot. Gertrude often called Sylvia a whore and convinced her children that Sylvia was a prostitute. Then she gave sermons on the evils of sexual immorality while her daughter Paula stomped on Sylvia's groin. Paula had recently become pregnant and she accused Sylvia of also being pregnant, even though she wasn't. So Paula took a knife and began mutilating her genitals. Gertrude's 12-year-old son, John Jr., would take his younger sibling's soiled diapers and force Sylvia to lick them. Other times, Sylvia was forced to strip naked and shove an empty Coca-Cola bottle into her vagina while the other children watched. After days and weeks of torture and abuse, Sylvia could no longer use the bathroom voluntarily. She couldn't even get up from her bed, so she would constantly wet her mattress. And Gertrude eventually decided that Sylvia was no longer fit to live with the rest of her family. So Gertrude locked her in the basement without food or access to a bathroom. But even then, the torture didn't stop. Gertrude began spreading rumors about Sylvia because she wanted to get the local kids to join in on the torture. She told one of her daughters that Sylvia had called her friend a whore. So her daughter got her friends to come over and beat Sylvia for what they thought she said. One of the local teenage girls named Anna Sisko was told by Gertrude that Sylvia had been saying her mother went out with all sorts of men and got $5 to have sex with them. Anna never bothered to figure out if Gertrude was even telling the truth. So Gertrude then invited Anna into her home and told her that she didn't care what she did to Sylvia. She could literally do whatever she wanted. She just watched as Anna grabbed hold of Sylvia and threw her down to the ground. Anna began beating her face and kicking her in the stomach. Gertrude then got one of the neighborhood kids, Ricky Hobbs, and her 11-year-old daughter, Marie, to carve the words, 
I'm a prostitute and proud of it into Sylvia's stomach with a heated needle. At one point, Sylvia's older sister, Diana, came to Gertrude's house and tried to see her younger sisters. Jenny had gotten a hold of Diana by phone and told her the terrible things that were happening in the house. When Diana approached the house, Gertrude turned her away at the front door. Diana eventually realized that Gertrude had been keeping Sylvia hidden away in the basement, so she actually began sneaking in food so that Sylvia could eat. One of the neighbors also thought something suspicious was going on at Gertrude's house, so Diana and the neighbor reported Gertrude to a public health nurse. Why not just call the police? But this health nurse made a visit to the house and she couldn't find Sylvia because she was locked away in the basement. Gertrude had told the nurse that she had kicked Sylvia and Jenny out of her home. So after the inspection, the health nurse reported that everything seemed to be fine. Gertrude got so confident with her abuse, she would even beat Sylvia while the neighbors were watching. Other next-door neighbors claimed to have seen Paula hit Sylvia inside the home on two separate occasions, but they didn't report the abuse because they said they feared for their own lives. Jenny had thought about fleeing and going to the authorities, but she was threatened, bullied, and beaten by Gertrude's children and the neighborhood kids. They were told that if they were ever tried to contact the police, they would die. One day, Jenny went down to the basement to find her sister lying on the floor. At this point, she was barely alive. With a little bit of energy she had left, Sylvia told Jenny that she knew she was going to die soon. I can tell, she said. Gertrude could also tell that Sylvia was about to die. So she forced Sylvia to write a note and lie about what had happened to her. In the note, she told her parents that she had run away and that she had met up with a group of boys and had sex with them. And then they beat her and mutilated her body. Not long after Sylvia had written this note, she overheard Gertrude tell her children that she was planning on taking Sylvia to a nearby forest and leaving her there to die. So Sylvia tried one more time to escape the basement. She made her way upstairs and managed to get all the way to the front door before Gertrude caught her. Sylvia had become so weak from the lack of food and severe injuries that she had sustained that she couldn't even run. Gertrude then invited a neighborhood boy named Coy Hubbard to come into the house and beat Sylvia with a curtain rod. After several blows, Sylvia fell to the floor unconscious. When she woke up for a moment, Gertrude then stomped her in the head until she passed out again. Then they began carrying Sylvia to the tub to bathe her, and that's when they noticed that she wasn't breathing. Gertrude's daughter Stephanie attempted CPR, but it was too late. Within days of Sylvia telling her sister that she was going to die, Sylvia passed by October 26, 1965. She had actually died from a brain hemorrhage, shock, and malnutrition. She had been tortured and starved for three months straight, and by the end, she was so abused that she could no longer form words, and she could barely move her body. 150 wounds covered her body, and she was emaciated from lack of food and water. Her fingernails were bent backward, and her skin was so dry it was peeling off of her hands. Many of the wounds were in various stages of recovery, which showed that her trauma had been going on for several weeks before her death. Gertrude moved her body to a mattress in one of the bedrooms. She then gathered up her children so they could rehearse what they would tell the police because she knew she had to report Sylvia's death to the authorities. When the police finally came to her home, Gertrude stuck to her made-up story. She told the police that Sylvia had ran away and had sex with strange boys in the woods, and they later beat her to death. Gertrude even tried to act sad and fake cry in front of the police. 
and she told them that she had tried to revive Sylvia when she found her dead. Meanwhile, Jenny finally saw her chance. As soon as she was out of earshot from Gertrude, she whispered over to one of the police officers. She told them that if she got out of here, she would tell them the real truth. So the officers got Jenny to safety, and she told them everything. As a result, police ended up arresting Gertrude, Paula, Stephanie, and John, as well as Richard and Coy for murder. They also arrested a number of neighborhood kids, including Mike Monroe, Randy Lepper, Darlene McGuire, Judy Duke, and Anna Sisko for assault. All these kids were all minors, so they'd end up blaming Gertrude for being pressured to abuse and torture Sylvia. Several other children were involved in the assaults, but they proved to be too young to be charged. But Gertrude ended up pleading not guilty by reason of insanity. Believe it or not. She said she was in a depressive state, hooked on prescription drugs, and could barely even remember what had happened. And then she tried to blame her own children for everything. During the trials, everyone involved tried to put the blame on everyone else. But in the end, justice was served. And Gertrude was convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison on May 19th. 1966, although she was spared the death penalty, even though her own lawyer later admitted that he thought she should go to the electric chair. Gertrude's daughter Paula had given birth to her daughter during the trial. Paula was then convicted of second-degree murder and also sentenced to life in prison. Her younger brother John Jr. was also convicted of manslaughter and given two separate 2-21 to year prison sentences since he was a minor. Richard and Coy were sentenced the same way, but all three boys were paroled just two years later, in 1968. By the time Richard was released, he had developed a heavy chain-smoking habit, and he had suffered a nervous breakdown when the severity of his crimes had finally sunk in. He ended up smoking so much that his lungs were severely decayed by the time he was 20, and by the age of just 21, he actually died from lung cancer. Paula later appealed her sentence and was granted a new trial. She ended up striking a plea bargain and pled guilty to voluntary manslaughter. And she served only three years in prison before being paroled. Gertrude also successfully appealed her sentence and she was also granted a new trial. Her sentence was appealed along with her daughters because of a prejudicial atmosphere in the original trials. But yet again... Gertrude was found guilty, but this time she was only sentenced to 18 years to life. And of course, during those 18 years, Gertrude became a model prisoner. She worked in the prison sewing shop and became a mother figure to many of the younger female inmates. And by the time she was up for parole in 1985, she had even earned the prison nickname, Mom. So you know what? They let her out on parole. Which this news sent shockwaves through Indiana. Jenny and her family appeared on television to speak out against Gertrude and her release. And over the next two months, groups had gotten together and collected 4,500 signatures demanding that Gertrude be kept behind bars. But despite all of this, she was still granted parole. During the parole hearing, she said that she didn't know what role she had in it because she was still on drugs. She said that she never really knew Sylvia, but she took full responsibility for whatever happened to her. So this worked, and she was released from prison on December 4th, 1985. She then traveled to Iowa, where she changed her name to Nadine Van Fossen. Gertrude later died, though, of lung cancer in 1990, 
and her daughter Paula also changed her name and moved to Iowa. Rumors claim, though, that she's still alive and lives on a farm in the countryside, laying low. John Jr. also changed his name to John Blake, and he worked as a truck driver before becoming a real estate agent and a lay minister. He was never arrested again, and he married and had three children. He later said in 1998 that he took full responsibility for his role in the murder of Sylvia, and a harsher sentence would have been more just. Since Sylvia's death, the home of 3850 East New York Street became a target for vandals. The home was covered in graffiti before it was eventually demolished. And the neighborhood has tried to move on from the horrors that happened there. But no one will ever forget how a neighborhood of children and one woman tortured and killed a young innocent girl. An absolutely tragic and sad story. And just, when I hear stories like this and the individual responsible for especially torture like this does not stay in prison for life at a minimum. I mean, I personally think she should have received the death penalty for this because this is just absolutely brutality. I mean, this is somebody that has no regard for life. And I mean, you could You know, someone probably argue and say, well, she was depressed, she was mentally ill, so maybe that played a factor into it, but I don't care. I mean, the fact that not only did she torture Sylvia, but then she went and got her children involved and got the neighborhood kids. I mean, there's clearly a sick satisfaction that she got from this at the expense of this poor girl. I just, I can't even imagine the horror and trauma that Jenny, her sister, lives with. It's just, I mean, to know and be there, basically, while your sister's being tortured to death must be just something that you obviously can never forget or move on from. But just a, a absolutely tragic story. But moving on to the next death on our list. This one has less to do with the horrors of how people treat each other but more with the horrors of man-made technology. So Hizachi Auchi was born in Japan in 1965. Nuclear power technology had moved quickly over the decades, and only a few natural resources could be found around Japan, and importing them became very costly. So Japan realized that nuclear energy was their more sustainable source of energy. The first commercial nuclear power plant in Japan had been built only four years before Hizachi's birth. And by the 90s, Hizachi had been looking for work and nuclear energy was huge by then. So he then began working at the nuclear power plant in Tokiomura, Japan. The power plant was perfect for the amount of land nearby, and they ended up building a whole campus of nuclear reactors, research institutes, and disposal facilities. One-third of the city's entire population would end up relying on nuclear power. But on March 11, 1997, disaster struck. Locals felt the ground shake as they looked on in horror. An explosion at the power reactor rocked the city and sent radiation into the sky. Dozens of people were irradiated, but a government cover-up tried to hide this negligence. But they hadn't seen the worst of it yet. Only two years later, another tragedy would strike. Izachi's job was to convert uranium hexafluoride into enriched uranium. 
This was usually a carefully multi-step process where he would mix several elements in a carefully timed sequence. But in 1999, officials began experimenting with the process as they wanted to make it faster. But since they were experimenting too much, it caused them to miss a deadline on September 28th. Under pressure to produce more energy, Hizachi and one of his peers, as well as the supervisor, experimented with a shortcut. Instead of using the automatic pumps designated for mixing enriched uranium with nitric acid, they decided to use their hands to pour 35 pounds of the uranium into steel buckets. So September 30th, around 10 a.m., this uranium reached critical mass. The room where they were working exploded with energy. A blinding blue flash of light confirmed that a nuclear chain reaction had just occurred, and lethal amounts of radiation instantly filled the room. In that moment, Hizachi became the most radioactive man in all of history. As the plant was evacuated, Hizachi and his colleagues were transported to the National Institute of Radiological Sciences. It's understood that exposure to seven sieverts of radiation is fatal. Even when they tested the men at the lab, their supervisor was exposed to three sieverts. Hizachi's co-worker was exposed to ten, and Hizachi himself, who had stood directly over the steel bucket, was actually exposed to 17 sieverts, more than double the lethal amount. This was the most anyone had ever been exposed to radiation, and the side effects were immediate. Right after he saw the blue flash of light, he felt intense pain and could hardly breathe. While they transported him to the hospital, he violently vomited until his stomach was completely empty, and then he fell unconscious. Radiation burns covered his entire skin. It bubbled and slid off of his body one piece at a time. Blood leaked out of his eyes, and by the time he got to the hospital, he had almost no white blood cells, and his immune system was compromised. They put him in a special ward to try and prevent infection. The next step was to figure out how much damage was dealt to his internal organs. After three days, they transferred him to the University of Tokyo Hospital, and while there, the doctors attempted several stem cell procedures to try and save his life. He had already received countless skin grafts and blood transfusions, and one of the cell transplant specialists wanted to try a stem cell transplant, which had never been done on a radiation victim before. The test ended up being a success, and Hizachi was finally able to generate new blood. But that hope didn't last long. As Hizachi fell back into a state of near death, his chromosomes had been annihilated, and the amount of radiation in his blood destroyed all the new cells and even his very DNA was being destroyed. At one point he said, I can't take it anymore. I'm not a guinea pig. After all the procedures, he felt like a test subject, but his family told the doctors to keep going. They kept trying their experimental treatments even with his skin melting straight off of his body. But after 59 days in the hospital, he suffered a heart attack, but his family wanted to keep him alive, so the doctors revived him and over the next hour he would suffer three more heart attacks. By now the lack of blood flow gave him serious brain damage. And finally, one last heart attack due to multiple organ failure put him to rest on December 21st, 1999. He'd actually been kept alive against his will for 83 days, and his excruciating death would go down in history. After the initial disaster, 310,000 people were ordered to stay indoors for 24 hours. Over the next 10 days, 10,000 people were checked for radiation. 600 people were exposed, but Hizachi and his colleague 
Masatoshi Nahara suffered the most. Masato also ended up spending over 200 days fighting for his life in the hospital. Doctors also tried to take blood stem cell transfusions from an umbilical cord of a newborn, but nothing worked. Eventually, he died of lung and liver failure on April 27, 2000. As for their supervisor, Tutaka Yokokawa, he survived after three months of treatment, and he only had minor radiation sickness. In October of 2000, though, he faced criminal charges of negligence. The company they worked for, JCO, paid out $121 million to settle almost 7,000 claims from the locals who were affected by this horrible disaster. As for the power plant, it continued to operate under a different company until it was automatically shut down during an earthquake and tsunami in 2011. Since then, it has never been open for operation. The nuclear experiments they had tried cost Hizachi his life, and the medical experiments put him through months of torture before he could finally rest. Radiation sounds like the absolute, probably one of the absolute worst ways to die. I mean, just being alive and having this, I mean, really, I think, I mean, other than the the blue spark, I mean, radiation is invisible. And then just seeing the skin on your body start to bubble and li- like it literally falls off. I mean, if you look at radiation victims and you see the pictures, it's just, oh, uh, can't even imagine what that must have been like. And then on top of that, obviously, once they found out that he had been exposed to 17 sieverts, I mean, that's clearly way beyond the limit that the body can handle. They still decided to do all these stem cell treatments to try to keep him alive. And I mean, I understand his family wanting to try to save their son, but at what cost? I mean, to end up basically torturing him through all these procedures when you know, after he had had that first heart attack, they could have allowed him to just pass. Instead, they revived him, and then he experienced that several more times. I don't know. It's, I mean, it's a definitely a tough call if you're, you know, for the parents of Hizachi. But I don't know. I think after you find out that your 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 son's been exposed, I mean, there's literally nothing they can do. Everything is just a complete shot in the dark. I think probably just want to alleviate his suffering but yeah it's a really really tough one having your skin melt off of your body by nuclear radiation was obviously a really really horrible way to go but imagine having your skin melting off after you visit yellowstone national park which is supposed to be a fun adventurous time Well, that brings us to the story of Colin Scott, who was a 23-year-old man from Oregon. And on June 7, 2016, he and his sister Sable visited Yellowstone National Park where they decided to hike some of the trails. At one point, they decided to wander off into a prohibited section looking for a place to soak or a hot pot in the thermal pools. Many of the regions inside the park are safe and open for swimming, but Colin and his sister had come across Norris Geyser Basin. Here the waters can reach to over 450 degrees Fahrenheit, basically like jumping into an oven. Most of the water in the park is alkaline, but in this basin the water is highly acidic, which makes it even more dangerous. And the reason for this is because hydrothermal vents underneath the surface emit chemicals into the water. 
and microorganisms also break off pieces of the surrounding rock, which adds sulfuric acid to the pool. Colin and his sister walk past the warning signs that told him to remain on the boardwalk, and these signs are literally everywhere. They walked about 225 yards into an isolated area where only a thin layer of dirt separated them from the hot water beneath their feet. His sister was actually filming their hike when Colin suddenly tripped and fell into the hot spring. This footage that she took has never been released to the public, but supposedly it shows Sable running to try and rescue her brother, but it was no use as Colin began to boil alive in the acidic water and he couldn't escape. His sister screamed for help and eventually ran to a nearby museum until search and rescue rangers finally arrived. But by then it was far too late. Colin's body had already begun to dissolve in the boiling acid water. When a rescue crew arrived to the scene, portions of Colin's head, upper torso, and hands were seen floating in the hot spring. A v-neck shirt was also visible and a metal cross that was connected to a necklace rested on Colin's face. He wasn't moving at all, so they suspected that he was already dead. When they checked the water, it was well over 210 degrees Fahrenheit. This, along with an approaching lightning storm, made it impossible to safely recover what was left of Colin's body. A few days passed, but it was still too dangerous to recover what was left. Plus, the water was so acidic that there was hardly anything left to recover. Colin actually remained in the thermal pool until he was completely gone. His death became the first thermal-related death in 16 years in Yellowstone National Park, and it takes the top spot as the worst thermal pool death in history. Natural disasters have caused countless tragedies through the years, and for Colin, hopefully his death was quick. Because not everyone trapped in the clutches of nature receive a quick and painless death. Which that brings us to our last story we're going to cover today about a young girl named Omera Sanchez and nature showed her no mercy. In November of 1985, a massive mudslide ran through the town of Armero, Colombia. It was brought on by an eruption of a nearby volcano, Nevado del Ruiz. It stands 17,500 feet above sea level and it had been dormant for nearly 70 years. In September of 1985, new tremors had become so powerful that the locals became worried. Amaro was a town of 31,000 people and was about 30 miles east of the volcano center. On November 13, 1985, the locals' nightmares finally came true. The volcano erupted. The explosion was small and melted less than 10% of the ice cap that covered the crater. Even though the initial eruption wasn't violent, it started a devastating mud flow. The mud flow traveled nearly 25 miles per hour until it reached the city. After only a few hours, the mud flow covered 85% of the city in thick, heavy sludge. Roadways, buildings, and bridges were all destroyed. And if they weren't destroyed, they were surrounded by the mud flow that had grown to a mile wide. The mud and dirty water ended up trapping residents who tried to flee the city. In some places, the mud was 15 feet deep. It was too wet to walk through and it was too thick to swim through. A few were lucky enough to escape early on, but as many as 25,000 people would end up dying. Only a fifth of the city's population would survive. It took hours before rescue efforts began, and after the hours passed, many of the locals couldn't escape the mud. Their skin began to prune and many drowned. 
One of the victims that was trapped was 13-year-old, Omera. As the towns of mud and water surged through the town, Omera found herself buried beneath debris and neck-deep mud. A photojournalist named Frank Fournier arrived in the capital of Colombia two days after the eruption. He ended up taking a five-hour drive and a two-and-a-half-hour walk until he made it to Armaro. His plan was to capture the rescue efforts on film from the ground. But when he arrived, things were way worse than he originally thought. The rescue efforts were chaotic and disorganized, and the rescue teams were confused and desperate. Hundreds of people were trapped in the mud flow, but rescuers couldn't reach them. And throughout the day, Frank could hear people screaming for help, and then suddenly nothing but silence. As he documented the horrors, a local farmer caught his attention. The farmer then led him over to a little girl who had been trapped in the mud, and this little girl's name was Omera, and only her head and arms were above the water. She had been trapped by the debris of her destroyed house for nearly three days. Rescue volunteers and locals tried to pull her out of the mud, but something deep below the murky water had pinned her legs. She wouldn't budge no matter how hard they pulled. They would later find out that her legs were trapped by a brick door in the arms of her dead aunt. Her aunt had actually grabbed onto her in one last act of desperation. During the rescue attempts, nothing could get Omera out of the mud, and the water kept rising from the continuous rains. The surface slowly inched up to her chin, towards her mouth, threatening to drown her. And by the time Frank had found her, she had been trapped for too long. Her energy was long gone. She floated in and out of consciousness while Frank took her picture. When she gained consciousness, she asked Frank if she could take her to school because she was worried about being late. She told a nearby reporter that she was going to miss a year because she hadn't been to school for two days. Frank ended up sitting by her side for three hours as the rescuers failed over and over again to release her from the mud. Finally, she asked the volunteers to let her rest. And she told them to tell her mother that she said goodbye. Frank actually caught the last moments of her life on film. He later said he felt totally powerless as this little girl faced death with courage and dignity. His photographs ended up sparking a backlash against Columbia's poor rescue efforts. They also sparked controversy over whether he should have taken the pictures at all. But Frank defended his decision. He believed he needed to share Omera's tragic story. He needed to show the world how disorganized the rescue efforts were for poor people around the world. Since the volcano hadn't been an active threat for 140 years, local authorities weren't willing to pay for the costly preventative measures. A month before the mudslide, Colombian Congress said that the scientific and civil defense agencies were fear-mongering. Despite all of this, this volcano continues to threaten half of a million people in the surrounding regions. And after this tragedy, the town of Armero was never rebuilt. And all that remains today is a ghost-filled town with debris. I think for most of us, it's almost impossible to even imagine what it would be like to be trapped in a mudslide or a flood or any other sort of natural disaster. I want to know what you think about Frank taking pictures of Amara before she ended up dying. Do you think that was the right thing to do? Do you think he did it for, you know, reasons of raising awareness to the rescue efforts or, you know, was a sort of an exploitive thing that he did to, you know, try to further his career? Because obviously that photo is going to be highly sought after and, you know, he's going to get some credit for that, I guess you could say, for going all the way out there and getting this photo. I want to know what your opinions are on that. But this list of deaths definitely makes you you count your blessings and 
hope that nothing like this ever happens to you. Because obviously most of us will never experience being slowly crushed by stones or imprisoned and beaten to death by the whole neighborhood or radiated to record-breaking levels, boil alive, or again trapped in a mudslide for three days while being held down by the clutches of our dead loved ones. I mean, can't even imagine. And for that, we can all definitely be thankful. But I want to know your thoughts on this episode. Which one of these maybe shocked you the most or you know maybe there's a story out there that you've heard that you'd like me to cover in a future part two of the series let me know in the comments below but i'm gonna wrap up today's episode there thank you again for joining me for another episode of the lights out podcast do me a favor make sure you're following us on spotify subscribed on youtube and apple Podcasts. i'd really really appreciate it it's free to do so, and it really does help out the show. Leave us a rating or a review. Also, check out our request form where you can submit a topic suggestion for a future episode. But that's where it all ends today. Count your blessings. Be thankful if you're healthy and well. And try to do right by others. I'll see you guys next week. And until then, lights out everybody.